Please be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12. So we continue in our study of not only this book, uh, but of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Having moved from an overview of his ministry of three years, we've now for these past few weeks and for the, uh, well, for our next foreseeable future, for the rest of the spring anyway, be focused on the Passion Week, uh, the week leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. Likely we are in about Wednesday of that week. We are not certain. We are certain next week when Camper teaches, it will be Thursday. Uh, but it could be Tuesday or Wednesday of the week uh, uh, that we're looking at uh, today. Our passage this morning that we'll begin reading will be in verse 36, continuing through verse 50 or the end of chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. John 12:36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, uh, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given himself, has, has, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The word of our God. Let's go to our God in, in prayer that he would speak to us. Father, we do come and we thank you for this word. We thank you for uh, both the commentary of John and the words of Jesus, knowing that all of this is inspired by you and, and your Holy Spirit, that we may know you and that we may know uh, your love and our need of it. Bless us as we consider this word this morning, some of it hard, uh, much of it clear. Uh, but Lord, you make all things clear. And so may you be at work not only to enlighten our minds, uh, but to enliven our hearts and to enable us to enjoy your presence, your gift, and you. We pray all this in Christ, your gift to us, you 
in the flesh. Amen. The legacy of Robert Ripley is preserved primarily through the oddity museums that are scattered throughout the country, maybe the world, in tourist towns like ours. People know the name, they may not even remember uh, that there was a, a man, but there was a time that Robert Ripley's name was really was a household name. Apparently during his popularity in the 1930s, Ripley's syndicated cartoon column appeared in over 300 newspapers around the world in dozens of languages and was read by uh, reportedly over 80 million people per day. There was also a poll in 1936 taken by the Boys Club of New York and some other ones that had similar polls and asking them who they would like to be when they grew up. And Ripley beat out President Franklin Roosevelt, boxer Jack Dempsey, auto tycoon Henry Ford, actor James Cagney, and even the aviator Charles Lindbergh. Robert Ripley was so popular and so well known at the time. And Ripley was known for his uh, interest uh, in all things that are bizarre. And he prided himself on the veracity of all of the things that he presented. He actually had a, a team of researchers uh, who would back up uh, um, what his, his research to make sure that what he was presenting uh, was accurate. Uh, but he was, uh, and he challenged everybody with the, just the, the bizarrity of these things to believe it or not. And he was often amused when people found what he had presented to be so outrageous that they just couldn't bring themselves to believe it. Well, in our text this morning, John presents us with a different kind of believe it or not, in one sense no less outrageous, no, no less and maybe even more amazing. As he reminds us of all that Jesus Christ had done as he had walked on the earth and told of, tells us of the fact that he had performed so many signs is the way that John describes it. And each of these signs was a call for people to believe it or not. And yet as we read in our text in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. As we look at the text that we've read this morning, what we see here in, in summary is that John presents for us both the, the causes and characteristics of unbelief and of belief. And as we work through this passage this morning, and we will work through it because there is a sense in which it is a, a complex passage. It's a fascinating passage, but I, you know, it's something that may not jump out at you at first. Um, but as we work through it, I, I believe that we will be the better for it um, because God speaks very clearly and very directly in this passage. I think as we begin here, we can begin in no better place than what kind of jumps out at people in dealing with the, the cause of unbelief, at least the cause of unbelief that we see in the beginning part of this passage. And we've got to deal with the sticky subject of the sovereignty of God. Now, almost every Christian would acknowledge that God is sovereign because that's a word that's in the Bible, and so everybody acknowledges that, and we use that word, God is sovereign, in our songs, in, 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 in our prayers. But at the same time, there has been a debate for generations, maybe even centuries, between theologians and normal Christians as to what is the extent of God's sovereignty. Is God sovereign sovereign? Is he mostly sovereign? Is he sovereign in every aspect of life? 
And in particular, where the debate seems to come down is, is God sovereign in the issue of salvation or just in the ordering of events in the world? Does God actually play a role in whether people believe or don't believe, or does he just sit by passively and wait for people to come to their own conclusions, receiving those who respond correctly and then rejecting those who do not? Regardless of where you come down on that question right now, the words that we have in our text are really somewhat troubling because we're told they did not believe, and then we're told that that was in part to fulfill the prophecy that Isaiah had spoken. And then as we move down into uh, verse 39 and verse 40, here these words are, are somewhat startling and, and somewhat troubling because as they explained, okay, so Isaiah's prophecy would be filled if we see prophecy as understanding of what's going to take place. We know prophecy needs to be fulfilled. But verse 39, it says, therefore they could not believe. And then, and then here John gives the reason why, according to the prophecy of Isaiah. For he, meaning God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and then I would heal them. And, and we read that and ask ourselves, what is going on here? In other words, it seems like it's saying, you know, if I didn't step in, and if I didn't blind their eyes, and I didn't harden their hearts, these people would all have believed. And we don't want that, do we? I mean, that's a, really one of the, a, a question that, that would strike us. And that's why it's a troubling passage, no matter where you stand on the theological issue of God's sovereignty. Is this really saying that God intervened to make sure that people didn't believe in, in this, uh, in Christ, despite all of the evidence there was for believing. But clearly that's what it says. But for us to understand, I think we need to consider the, the context of what is going on here. First, it is vitally important that we remember that all the prophecies of Christ had to come true. Otherwise, if he missed any of the prophecies, then there was reason to doubt. There was reason to reject. And in a very real sense, if he missed any of the multiple prophecies, then he would not have been the promised Messiah. And so therefore, Isaiah's prophecy had to be fulfilled. And since Isaiah made the statement that God would be at work and would harden their hearts and blind their eyes, then that had to be true in order for everything pertaining to Christ to be true. Now, that might be kind of an aha for some, but it still leaves the, the primary question uh, for us to say, but why did God prophesy that in the first place and, and so that it had to come true? Couldn't he have left that one out? I mean, there are plenty of prophecies throughout the Old Testament. He could have just not engaged in that one and, and not done that because it just seems so... Well, unfair is the word that often comes to mind. But we still need to consider it within the context of what's going on here. There is a practical consideration as well that I think brings clarity to what is going on with our, our text. And so I begin by just asking this. What do you imagine would have been the response of the masses of these people? after seeing all of the evidence that John is making clear, all of these signs and hearing him teach, and 
what would have likely have been the response? And, and the implication seems to be that they would have believed. Now, itself, that seems like, wasn't that the whole objective of Jesus coming in the first place, that, that people would believe, and then if they're believed, that they would be saved? Well, think about it this way. What, if, if the majority of the, the Jews, and maybe even the Greek leaders had believed, what would have been their disposition towards Jesus? Well, they would have followed him. They would have listened to him. They would have worshipped him. Again, all things that we would expect, all things that Jesus is calling us to do. But I think it's very unlikely that one of the things that they would have done if they had believed, adored, and followed him, it's very difficult for me to imagine that they would have then killed him, crucified him. It's very unlikely that they would have said, oh, we, we love you, and so we're going to make up a bunch of charges about you, and then we're going to have you arrested, and we're going to put you through a kangaroo court so that you can be convicted, and then ultimately crucified in, in just a few days. Are we all good with this plan? I mean, that was just far from it. When Jesus himself tells his disciples his time is short and then describes the kind of death by which he is going to die, they say, no. Don't say that. You're just such a pessimist. Because of their love and their affection, it's the same as we would do with anybody that we love. We don't want to see the suffering. We certainly don't want to see the unjust suffering. And yet, the whole purpose for Christ's coming was not just to teach and to instruct and to inspire and to direct, but to die. See, if Jesus was not hung on the cross, then there would be no salvation for anyone. There would be no propitiation, no satisfaction of God's wrath. There would be no redemption. Nobody, the price would not have been paid. Everybody is left up the creek. And so when we look at this passage and we see this troubling idea that God was at work and he blinded the people so that they couldn't process and, and understand and, and harden their hearts so that they wouldn't believe with their hearts, what we see here is a God who is sovereignly carrying out his eternal purposes. And what, rather than being perplexed, what we need to see here is that our God is willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish his redemptive purposes, which brings salvation to you, to me, to the nations of the world, including the people who were standing there rejecting him that day. So when we understand that in the context of what John is saying here and what is going on in these days leading up to the cross, we, rather than being troubled, are invited to rest our hearts in the sovereignty of our great God. And when we understand it in that light, it moves from being troubling to amazing. Well, does God still harden hearts and blind people today? And see, the only reason I'm asking that question is because I know somebody's going to ask me that question. And, and here's what I really want to tell you, and it's 100% true. Not my problem today because it's not in the text. But I'm pretty sure I'm not going to get away with that. So I don't want to take a lot of time, but I, I do want to touch on it simply because it is a very important and it's a very good question. And you may not be in a place where you are ready or able to accept the sovereignty of God in all things such as salvation. And I don't want 
to put you in a bad light. I don't want you to feel bad about that. And so the question is, does God still blind and does God still harden hearts? I would answer this way is, there is one sense in which it almost seems to be unnecessary because we're told throughout the scripture that our condition, nature, apart from Christ, is that we're dead in our sin. And then we use other metaphors, and John Newton, wonderfully, in, in, in the hymn Amazing Grace, which nobody seems to have a problem with, talks about, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And so we use these metaphors of blind, lost, dead, to describe the spiritual condition of every person apart from Jesus Christ. And if that's our condition, there is really, in one sense, no need for God to do anything else. Dead people don't see much. They don't think about much. Blind people don't see anything. Lost people are just confused, and therefore they're not processing anything. And so that is the reality of every single person that's been born on the face of the earth ever since our first parents fell. And so we need to understand that that's what the scripture does teach, and that was because of our doing. Now, on the other hand, it does also uh, say, the scriptures continue to remind us that God is sovereign. And while he did in this instance whatever it took to accomplish his redemptive purpose, he continues to be at work to accomplish his redemptive purpose. We wrestle with that thinking that it's unfair, but the reality is we don't know the whole of the story. We don't know what happened with all of these people that were here this day. We don't know their immediate responses at the news of the resurrection. And we don't know what happened in their hearts 40 days later at the time of Pentecost when Peter, preaching to them, brought the accusation that they were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, and yet he rose for their salvation. And it made me think back to the first time that I heard the gospel presented to me in a very clear way. I was a senior in high school. A man named Bill Delvo and I had played racquetball at our country club, and Bill was the youth intern at First Presbyterian Church of Nashville. I was at that church often enough to know that Bill was on the staff. I thought that he was the youth pastor, but he was the intern. I thought, that the in I thought that the youth pastor was the intern, and I didn't find out differently until the week I graduated from seminary when the guy who had been the youth pastor sat with me at a table because he was the featured speaker um, and realized, ah, you were actually the youth pastor in that church. Um, good to know, and 30 years later, no, 20 years later. We were sitting in my driveway, Bill dropping me off at my house, and presented for the first time in concise and clear the reality that my sin warrants death. And I didn't reject that, that I, that I understood. And that the only hope that we have is offered through Jesus Christ, giving himself his death and his resurrection. And I didn't doubt that either. But when he asked if I was prepared to receive Christ, my answer was no. There were things going on in my head, not rejection, not denying, not denying. I was really kind of wrapped up with the fact that I was unworthy. And so I figured I would, you know, kind of straighten up a little bit before I would make this commitment. And then several weeks later, I realized that's not going to happen. Um, and, so, and so whether it was just the nature of my heart, the preparation that had not come to uh, completion yet, or whether for whatever God's purposes that I still wouldn't understand, that the timing of my new birth would be delayed for that as opposed to then. I don't know the fullness of the story, but I do know that if we were to judge the wholeness of God not alive and making me alive, not enabling me to see, based on the day that I said, no, I'm not prepared to receive Christ, we would be limiting the story. And much of what we consider to be unfair when God is working out his redemptive purposes is because we only know in parts. 
I don't in any way want to minimize the fact that God in his sovereignty does apparently leave some to themselves and blind them. In fact, we're told in the book of Romans that the judgment that he gives is not so much blinding us, but he gives us over to the desires of our hearts when we desire something other than him. It's only his sovereignty that is at work to make us alive. And so while that is not a complete answer, it is something that we all need to wrestle with. And again, if you're not there yet, and it just still the pieces are not coming together in terms of God's sovereignty, I would say we are more than happy to continue to speak with you. And yet it still is a mystery to us as well. But having spoken in that sense, I also think that I need to just touch on this. For those of you who have no problem, in fact, almost pride yourself on the sovereignty of God. You know, you reform kind of people. We need to realize that the sovereignty of God is not an issue for us to take pride in. In fact, it just is such a foolish kind of thing that makes, I, I, I think about it. I'm probably guilty, but when I think about it in, in a sober mindset, it's kind of like, so what, the whole idea of God's sovereignty says that there's nothing special about any of us, that God in his sovereignty and his will, he just chooses. So imagine Mark Begley and I get into this, into this argument. Oh yeah, Mark, well, I'm less special than you. Uh, and Mark says, you want to bet? I'm even less special. That's just ridiculous. And yet, sometimes we get so proud of our theology, we become foolish in the way we present it, not even aware of how ugly it is to people who are very thoughtful and conscientious. Right? Enough on that subject. Like I said, it wasn't in the text. So, um, so I took up more time than, than it warranted. But one of the things that we see here, after we see the sovereignty of God, is that God, John illustrates for us some of the characteristics of unbelief that we do see commonly, not only in the unbelievers that are in our lives or that are in our world, but in a peculiar way. Sometimes also in those of us who do believe, but we function as if we are unbelievers. John did say that while many didn't believe, there were still many who did believe in him, um, and yet there were characteristics that Jesus says, but that's not what this is all about. And I want to touch on just a few of those things that we, we see evidence in our text before I... I finish with what is the characteristic of belief to which Jesus calls us. I think the first thing that we see here is that sometimes unbelief is characterized by false assumptions. And in particular, what we see in this crowd are those who have the false assumption about their condition because they enjoy hearing Jesus speak. See, we're, we're told over and over in the scriptures that the crowds would gather to hear Jesus speak. They loved to hear the richness of his instruction. They loved the, the winsomeness and the poignancy of his stories. They seemed to particularly enjoy when he would enter into debates with these religious leaders, these 
pretentious, self-righteous religious leaders, and Jesus would just subtly not only win the debate, but put them in their place. And, and people loved that. And so they would come, and they would gather, and they would hear him speak, fascinated by his words, enthralled in his presence, and missing the very point to which he was speaking all along. Because he wasn't speaking for their entertainment. He was speaking for their conviction and to draw them to repent and to believe in the only hope, which he said is him, that he had been the one sent by the Father, not just to speak and to instruct, but ultimately to die. And yet their assumption seems to be Jesus is there and he'll always be there or be there for my lifetime. There'll always be another opportunity to go and listen to him to enjoy him in that way. Even though Jesus himself said that the time is short. This is a sober challenge to those of us who seem to think that the essence of the Christian life is Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, whether we attend or whether we teach, including coming for worship as if worship is about the teaching as opposed to engaging and being renewed by God. And we enjoy and we live for the Bible studies, but fail to recognize that the point of the study is not the participation, but the transformation. That we are a people that are changed by God's spirit who is within us to renew our minds, to empower us with his Holy Spirit and then commissioned to be sent out to live in a world that is dark in many ways, as living examples of a kingdom that is yet to come and yet is still very present, to challenge the world in their values rather than to conform to the world, hoping that they'll like us and then join us, to turn the world upside down if they are willing to embrace the radical call to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So the people were enamored with the words, but they missed the message. And we see that in people who are studying the scriptures and world religions, and they see it in us sometimes. Not that we need to minimize our Bible study, but we need to ask ourselves from time to time, are we engaging the word or are we engaging the word who became flesh? through these words. One is unbelief, the other is life. We see another characteristic here is those who not only had wrong assumptions, but I would say a, an erroneous focus. See, while many of the people came and loved the words that Jesus was proclaiming, I, I assume that there were probably at least a few, based on the way the people reacted, who eh, just kind of endured the sermons. And they were waiting for the show. We're told that he had performed many, many signs, and the signs that they're talking about is the miracles, and they were waiting to see something spectacular. And, and maybe it was out of a noble heart that they themselves knew of their own brokenness, and they were hoped that they would be healed, or somebody they knew, somebody they loved, who was in need of being touched and made whole. But not everybody there was in that situation, and so the people that had seen the signs 
and were enamored and came in order to see something spectacular take place, they missed the whole point of a sign in the first place. And John's very careful to call it a sign. And one of the things that we need to remind ourselves from time to time is that a sign exists to point to something else. In this case, the signs pointed to the power of God who sent Jesus and that Jesus in Jesus is God and the power of God and the person of God. If you've ever driven throughout the, the south, the deep south, you will see smattered throughout a series of barns that were painted, most of them back in 40s and 50s, with an advertisement that says, Sea Rock City. You can't go anywhere in Georgia or Tennessee and Alabama. And as far as Southwest Virginia, and I've seen them in West Virginia, they, it was a, a major advertising campaign um, before television. And the barns themselves are beautiful bucolic settings, and so there are photos and calendars of the Rock City barns is what they're known. And so you can buy them, they sell them, and, and um, just, just peaceful settings um, and beautiful pictures here. But no one who sees the barn, no one in the presence of one of those barns makes the mistake of thinking, all right, I'm in Rock City. See, if you're down someplace south of Atlanta, Rock City is on Lookout Mountain near Covenant College. You're nowhere near. The whole point is to point you in that direction so that you will see, this, you'll go to Rock City and to see all of those sites. I don't want to spoil it for you if you've not been to Rock City, so um, you can go talk with Alan Slade. I'm sure he's been there many, many times, sitting with a buddy from Covenant College. But the point is, is these people were told they saw the signs. They loved the signs. They just didn't care what the sign pointed to. And it's a reminder for us as well, because we can be like them as a people who pray when we want to see God at work in the lives of the people we love, whether it is to bring healing or salvation, or for the gospel to go out through our ministries and through our labors, and we are thankful to God when we see the sign of his presence and power among us when we are successful. And we can get very caught up in all of those things which are vitally important and they are the fruit of the life to which Christ calls us, but they are the signs of him, not him, the person. And when we focus on the signs, we are missing the point of the person. It's unbelief. Belief is, the one, is in the one to whom those signs point. And then finally, we see here perhaps the most common cause of unbelief. These are people that John describes as having believed in a sense. Verse 42, nevertheless, many, even the authorities believed in Jesus. But fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory of man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, their mindset is not difficult to imagine. They had seen enough. They had heard enough. They had come to the conclusion, this Jesus is special. Truly, he is sent from God. 
There's no reason to doubt anything that he says or that there's anything that he can't do. And in that sense, they believed. But John is making a contrast here. He's not, even in their belief, he is not saying they belonged to Christ. It's the same kind of thing that we saw early in this letter when it says that many believed in him, but Jesus would not commit himself to them. He didn't give himself to them. In other words, what we're seeing here in these people is an intellectual and maybe even an emotional belief, but not a full, robust, life-giving faith. Now, to Jewish ears, that would have meant something very different than it would have to Greek ears, because the Greek ears would have been a lot like ours. What do you mean? You asked me if I believe? I said yes. If you want me to describe it, I'll give you a bullet point list, and every point I will describe exactly what the facts are and tell you, yeah, that's my position, because it was totally intellectually driven. But for Jewish people, it was far more holistic in the belief, and that's what John is not only getting at, but calling us to as well because it is not a mere intellectual assent, because the mere intellectual assent, even though there is a truth of which it is believed, according to the call of Jesus Christ, it is still functioning as unbelief, because Jesus is calling all of us, entirety, to be his followers. And what choked it out in their life was fear, the cost that they would pay of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, and an elevation of the people that are around them more than a concern for God. And this pricks me. Not just because I see it in our congregation, in every congregation, but even more so because I see it in myself. To function with unbelief because of criticism or fear of what might happen if we're faithful, doing the radical things that Jesus calls us to do. The fear of people, the desire for the glory, which is from, comes from people, their praise, their whatever goes along with that, is so present. And the possibility of either withholding that or in some cases people even punishing you, which is certainly would have been the case here and is in the case in many places throughout the world, punishing because they had made a commitment to Jesus Christ is what prevents them from following Christ in their lives. Jesus is calling us in a radical way to recognize that that itself, that fear of others, is part of the condition of our fallen nature for which Jesus came to set us free. Not that we never care what people think or that we would enjoy punishment in those circumstances when it happens. But to recognize the glory that comes from God is so far greater than the cost that we would pay that it seems as if it is nothing. So we see some characteristics of unbelief that is true for many that you know or that I know that are not believers and maybe some who will gather here today that are, are searching. These are the characteristics that is keeping us. But it's also vitally important that we recognize that even though we have become believers, 
So often we live as unbelievers, and any of these characteristics can be true of us as well. Not that we would lose a salvation, because God is very clear that if I have you, no one's taking you from me. But that we do lose, we do forfeit the joy of the salvation and the power of of his spirit within us. When we live our lives as unbelievers, what does it look like to believe? Simply put, what we see here in in our passage is this. We see it in verse 36. We see Jesus elaborate on it in verses 44 and after. Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. See, the call of Jesus throughout the scripture is in one way or another, come follow me. That's the first call that he did when he first came on the scene in the beginning of his ministry, come follow me. And that phrase is repeated throughout the scriptures and then others that are very similar to it, such as this. This is a a different expression of the same concept, come follow me. Come walk in the light, which means walk with Christ, which means not just believe doctrinal truths, but allow that to shape the way that you live your life. And again, belief is not simply a matter of saying, I'm gonna choose to live this way, but there is a belief in everything that is proclaimed, that we are a broken, needy people who needs to be saved because we can't do it ourselves no matter how we write our lives. But we walk with Jesus in that freedom that he secured, in the joy that we are able to grow in, in the light, in other words, where we see what's coming and we see where we're going, and most important, we see the light itself, who is Jesus Christ. That is faith. And so every one of us here this morning, as we hear John giving this narrative, kind of explaining what had been going on, it is a challenge to every one of us here to ask ourselves, do I believe or not? Because Jesus Christ has come to this world to be the light, to set a people free by faith. And the call is to believe it or not. Father, we come as your people thankful for your word. Not sure of you. Because your ways are not our ways. Your ways are greater and higher than our ways. And your ways sometimes confuse us. May you make us sure of this that you are not only trustworthy, you are true. And you are our hope and our salvation. And in Christ, we are made right with you. We have the joy of your presence, the power of your spirit. Lord, let us believe. We pray in Christ. Amen.